Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 48, and we're following the sagas of the Fasakis and others in the Huntam, that rough and ready part of the Northern Cape. As you heard last episode, Elsie Fasaki had been arrested after her husband, Gilliam, had been accused of raiding the Griqua and others, and had been ordered to Stellenbosch to face the Landrost Blettermann. Eventually, in December 1791, she was allowed to go free, judged to have been illegally detained and was told to head home to the Huntum and then pass on a message to her husband, come and answer the charges against you. Eight months later, there was still no son of Pasaki nor his companions. He merely explained he'd been too busy helping Willem van Rienen on an expedition. Last episode, I mentioned the van Rienens, who were one of the Cape's richest farming families back in the 1790s. At this point, silently and subtly, as Nigel Penn points out, the powerful influence of the van Rienen family began to permeate the justice system in the Cape. Officials were told that the activities of the Vasaki gang were to be regarded positively. They were apparently involved in a top-secret mission, along with van Rienen, a project that all right-minded officials of the day should support, and that was the avaricious fantasy hunt for gold. Willem van Rienen had sought and received permission to travel north of the Orange River to search for this treasured commodity. The rich farmer was convinced he knew where the gold mine lay and kept quoting an earlier explorer called Patterson, who had apparently discovered the mine in the 1770s. Van Rienen had pitched up at Gilliam Versace's farm in 1792, close to the modern town of Geertmanshoop inside Namibia. He travelled even further north shortly afterwards and is believed to have made it to where Rehoboth is today in Namibia. But on his return, things were very different. Van Rienen had come into contact with the Nama people, who had been treated very badly by the Dutch, and his men were either killed or fled, and most of his goods were plundered. Still, Fosaki gave Van Rienen 21 cattle and 20 sheep, and the man from the south then turned and headed north once more. He duly arrived in the Kamisbach and collected ore samples, which he sent to Amsterdam, where they were favorably assessed by an expert. Back in Stellenbosch, there was some disquiet about what von Rienen was up to, along with his relationship with Fasaki, who was still listed as a bandit. After some debate, they dropped the arrest warrant with a warning that Fasaki and his gang should conduct themselves in a law-abiding manner. Needless to say, the search for gold failed, and instead the next few expeditions spent their time shooting elephants and rhinos. Twenty of these now-endangered rhinos were gunned down near the Swakop River, for example. They would have shot more elephants and rhino, but had run out of wagon space. The chaotic land had spawned another by the name of Petrus Pino. Regarded as one of the most influential men of the frontier, Pino emerged as the spokesman of the Hunt Thomas. He was closely linked to the Afrikaner Urlams from at least the 1780s and was capable of incredible feats of physical endurance even by the standards of the day. Little is known about his activities in the Huntum in the 1780s, but we have a great deal of information about his later actions. In 1790, he wrote a letter to the Landrost of Stellenbosch outlining the crisis in the Huntum and suggesting solutions. Some of these would be what we would now call final solutions, particularly when it came to the sand. He wanted firearms and ammunition delivered to the local Feldwachtmeister and to the farmers. We know that many of these were already using their firepower to raid Griqua and other peoples of the area, and so did the Landros back in Stellenbosch. Interestingly, Pinar wanted the mixed people, those who were known as the Bastards, and as he said, both baptized and unbaptized, 
to be supplied with firearms along with the farmers. Local Feldbach Mr. Nell was not very happy about the suggestion because Pinar was hinting that he was better at the job of policing the frontier than the official policeman. While Nell and others had been preoccupied with Fasaki's gang and the Van Rienens, the military situation along the entire northern frontier had been deteriorating. We've already heard about how the Hantam was abandoned at this time. Things took an ominous turn for the San. In 1794, Pinar offered to undertake commandos at his own expense, provided he received a bounty of 15 rix dollars per adult San he killed. Just to sweeten the terrible deal and as a mark of his goodwill, said Pinar, he was prepared to accept the reduced rate of 10 rix dollars per San child he captured. Stellenbosch VOC officials hurriedly explained that their previous offers of rewards were for naturellen, as they called the San, to be taken as prisoners of war. But a short while later, Koi Captain Yonka Afrikaner killed 113 San and took 20 prisoners in the Bushman land near the Suk River. This was a slaughter of note, but Afrikaner and Pinar regarded the event as evidence of their efficiency. The Council of Policy back in the Cape was informed that even greater results might have been achieved if only more gunpowder and shot had been supplied to Pinar and the Bastards. He said he'd guarantee that he would tame and stop the Vudundanati, or vengeful nation, as he called the San, once and for all. This development altered when the British arrived, as we know, while they too were determined to rid the Hantam and other areas of Bushman land of the San, they were also extremely unhappy about the Trekboer's actions further east around the Krafreinet. Then around the Orange River, disorder grew. Class Afrikaner attacked the Vasaki farm in July 1793, but three of his men were shot dead. Two of Vasaki's were wounded. Things were becoming worse between the Afrikaners and the Trekboer's. And yet Klaas managed to seize Vasaki's firearms and drove away 300 of his cattle. Then the Fasakis, Van Zales and Baren Frey moved back south of the Orange. Things were too hot in a figurative sense. Meanwhile, the authorities in the Cape launched what would eventually become a settler tradition in South Africa, the passbook system. It meant carrying a pass or in-book, as it was known in the 1790s, where Khoisan and Bastards entering the Cape had to carry this document and were prohibited from buying arms from the Trekboers. At the same time, it was made compulsory for the Khoi to take part in commandos. Ironically, as you're going to hear, Class Africana was soon registered as a Hottentot Corps and a Khoi Khoi chief in 1793. This will come as a surprise of struggled political experts who view Class as a kind of forerunner of the ANC and Swapo in Namibia. Swapo saw Class Africana as a proto-Namibian nationalist resisting white power, but it was his descendants who would be synonymous as colonial resistors in the 19th and 20th century. Right now, he was a collaborator. So, Pietrus Pinar, the Trekboer's power in the 1790s, was based on his military prowess and the fighting machine he developed on the frontier zone. He was regarded as a good leader. He had many contacts. He had the drive and knowledge to exploit the region's potential. And now, he had a supply of state-sponsored arms and ammunition. He also had his private army in the form of Class Africana. Class, of course, was no one's fool and was using Petrus for his own ends. Their interests intersected only for this moment. They would serve Pinar, then as these things work, would become more powerful than Pinar and later 
would regard themselves as having been exploited by this trekboer. At first, Petrus Pinau ogled these Afrikaners, these mixed-race and koi bastards, boasting of their ability. Within two years, men like Jan Blum, the German we met previously, were raising havoc across the Orange. And by the last few years, as the British arrived, the Afrikaners and men like Blum had left an indelible impression on the region. And then came the violent severing of ties between Petrus Pinau of the Orange River and the Afrikaners. It was the event I'm going to describe that heralded the arrival of a period of unprecedented banditry and terror in the Middle Orange. At the beginning of March 1796, Michiel Bock, who was Petrus Spinar's friend and an accomplice of Jan Blum, was told that Khoisan robbers were stealing cattle from his Huntum farm. Remember, folks in those days often had more than one farm in these vast, isolated areas, and it was hard to maintain security at all. Petr Spinau was now the new Feldwachtmeister, and Bock asked for help, but Pinau didn't arrive. Bock and his Knecht, Barent, rode to the farm to find out what had caused Pinau's delay. On their arrival at the farm, they found the doors and windows shut, but the wagon was in the wagon shed. Bock sensed something was seriously wrong. He rode around the house in ever-increasing circles, and a thousand yards away found two of Pinau's children lying in the felt. Pinar's daughter Miki had five wounds in her head, but she was still alive, while Pinar's son Jakob was also seriously injured but could not speak. Miki told Bok that Captain Afrikaner and other Koi had shot her father dead, then beaten her other sister and her mother to death. Bok and Baran picked up the children and took them to safety, then returned to the house. Waiting nearby was Pinar's slave called Mart, who told them that class Afrikaner and a few other koi had arrived, shot Pinar out of hand, raped and then beaten his wife and oldest daughter to death. Later the cause of all this bloodshed emerged, and folks, it's not a pretty picture. As we know, life on the African frontier is harsh, it's hard, it's unforgiving, particularly when it comes to the treatment of women. Why had the Afrikaners turned their guns and weapons on the Pinars? The explanation most missionaries and travellers put forward later was this, Petrus Pinar and his son Arnoldus were in the habit of cohabiting with the wives of Klaas Afrikaner's sons. There is no direct proof of this, but Klaas and his sons began to suspect that when they were sent on commando by Petrus, he behaved improperly towards their wives. The women said nothing, but Pinar began sending Klaas and his sons more frequently away from home, and this merely confirmed their suspicions. While this allegation of impropriety has never been proven, perhaps a more likely explanation for the Afrikaner resentment was that they were tired of being sent away on commando while the Trekboers enjoyed their stay at home. It was also clear to the Afrikaners that Pinar was a restraining force that needed to be removed. They had plans. It could have been Bok's request to Pinar for another commando that pushed the Afrikaners over the edge However, there's no question that the rebellion includes sexual anxiety on the part of the Afrikaners. Reverend John Campbell later wrote, Information having come to Pinar that the bushman had carried off some cattle from a boor belonging to the district over which he was field cornet. He, in his official character, commanded them to pursue the bushman in order to recapture the cattle. This order they positively refused to obey, alleging 
that his only motive for sending them on such an expedition was that they might be murdered and he might thereby get possession of their wives. As the Afrikaners fled to the Orange River, having killed Pina, they were to be pursued by a posse or commando, set by Feldwachtmeesters Franz Luber, Johannes Karstens and Tilman Nuvoet. So this posse commando managed to find a few unfortunate San and killed them instead. Downhearted, they returned home empty-handed. But the truth is, these Trekboers, for all the talk of revenge, were not enthusiastic about confronting the armed, mounted and extremely experienced Afrikaner gang. Things began to gather pace. Word got around. While subsequent commandos also failed, more disaffected Urlams, Khoikhoi and Bastards joined the Afrikaner ranks, or began to emulate their aggressive independence. Decades of abuse they had endured were now going to backfire on the Trek Boers and the establishment. It was so bad that in February 1797, Franz Lübe asked permission to resign from an increasingly difficult job. Khoikhoi and his district had guns and were crack shots, they had obtained these from the Afrikaners. And these Khoikhoi had told Luba to his face they were coming to his farm to shoot him dead. A revolt in the Makwaland was on the offering. A great many murderers and rogues were now gathered there, along with disaffected Khoi forced out of the ancient Cape Feinbos homes by the expanding settler farms. There was an intolerance of Trekboers by now, even a hatred. The persecution had been a century in the making, and eventually people snapped. Everyone wants freedom, and the remote regions of Namakwaland offered a form of free life away from exploitation. While the Trekboers had seized the best land, they were not wealthy by any means. They lived like the Namakwa themselves, in domed huts of reed matting. They lived with the Khoikhoi, shared huts with Namakwa women, and their farms with Namakwa families. But as the expanding colony brought its race paranoia closer, inevitably the amount of land available and the social moors closed in, on the people of the region. Tensions were mounting by the end of the 18th century. A land hunger began to grow and the Khoi were pushed into marginal land. Naturally, the Trek Boers targeted the Urlams, who also had guns, and it was this increased tension that provoked a widespread revolt, which, for a moment, united the Khoi Khoi Urlams and even the San, who were enemies as they fought the Trek Boers. The murder of Petra Spina and the inability of the Trekboers to round up the culprits suddenly revealed the incredible fragile nature of their supposed power here on the edges of the Cape. Shortly afterwards, Klaas and Piet Barend led an uprising, a fact that surprised officials in July 1797. A rather hapless Feldwachtmeister was in command of the Kamisbach. Andres Krai was called upon to act, but he prided himself on something that just did not cut the mustard in the Macquarie. He told all and sundry that he was a European, having been born in the Netherlands. Instead of being overawed, the locals thought of him as weak, as an outsider. Whatever his qualities, they did not include a good sense of understanding the real situation in the Macquarie Being a self-identified European, he indulged in stirring up a hornet's nest amongst the Namakwa of little Namakwa by trying to seize all their firearms and gunpowder. He took a very us-and-them position when he actually needed more allies. But local Trekboers suddenly loved his new idea, and colonists such as Andres van Sale happily helped confiscate these firearms. In one kraal of thirty, the inhabitants were relieved of their protection, their six flintlocks, and then were forced out of the area on pain of death. 
You don't need a degree in psychology to understand that by October 1797, Krai would be writing how local Koikoi were becoming increasingly surly in his district. Later that month, a letter arrived in Cape Town addressed to the governor. Then a Matkwai complained that Andris Krai had been ill-treating them. It took another year of arbitrary seizures and coy anger before matters came to a head. The trigger was a simple matter of recording people's names. The government of the Cape, British now of course, wanted to understand who was in their colonial jurisdiction but living in independent kraals. These were Khoi living in the Huntam and Namakwalan who did not work for the Trekboers. So in August 1798, Feldwachtmeister Fisser of the Rochefeld reported that kraal-dwelling Khoi were refusing to give him their names. However, it was in Namakwalan that things escalated far more dramatically. In December 1798, Veldkornet van der Westezen of Little Namakwalan wrote a desperate letter to the Landros of Stellenbosch. When that bastion of Europeanness, Andries Krai, had instructed the kraal-dwelling Khoi of Little Namakwalan to allow him to record their names, they immediately thought it extremely sinister. The kraals then gathered together and launched an attack on five farms, plundering muskets, powder, shot and livestock. On the farm of widow van der Westhuizen, both she and her knecht, Hendrik Hivas, had been killed. The Khoi seized 21 guns and a large quantity of ammunition. The reason for the Khoi anger was revealed shortly afterwards. The uprising was prompted by the belief that their names were being recorded prior to them being taken into slavery. They'd rather fight to the death than that, they said. The armed Khoi now numbered in their hundreds and the Drikpurs could only muster a measly commander of less than 50 men. Worse, the farms could not be left unprotected, and the Namakwa were telling everyone they were now going to drive the Drikpurs back from whence they came, the south, to the Cape, or at least over the Ulifans River. Back in Cape Town, British officials were horrified by these developments and also starting to become aware that their Feldwachtmeister Krai was at least partly to blame. Governor-General Dundas, who was newly installed, sent letters to all felt cornets, impressing the need to be merciful. Then, Dundas also issued a stern statement to the Landrost and the Himrad. I must sincerely wish that this unfortunate disturbance may be quelled without the effusion of any more human blood, or the exertion of that disgraceful degree of savage revenge which too often has been found to exist. It is my intention to punish every act of unwarranted violence that either party may have committed, and, in the first instance, am to desire that you will apprehend the felt cornet Andres Cry and all his accomplices, taking regular depositions of the facts, that a criminal prosecution may be commenced against him. It was another of these moments in history. The British were not going to automatically support the whims of the Trekboers along the frontier, and at times they may actually rule in favour of the Griqua, the Khoi, and perhaps even the San. This infuriated the colonists along the frontiers, both the Orange River and the Zurfeld. But first, they had to deal with this Khoi uprising. What happened next is for next episode. Please rate the podcast on iTunes, and if you'd like to contact me, you can through my website, desmondlatham.com, or on Twitter, at Des Latham. Until next, tot ziens.